Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Secondary Accounts. I am so glad you're here with me to discuss this case. And I hope you're comfy. I hope that all is well. And I guess let's get started. There has been a question that has been unsolved for over 60 years. Who is America's unknown child? In February of 1957, in Philadelphia, a young boy was found in the woods. No, he was not lost or out playing with friends, most children his age were doing. He was found in a cardboard box. A hunter named John, and I'm totally going to butcher his last name, I totally apologize in advance because I will say his name a few times, and I'm sorry. <laughs> John Stock? Stachowiak? Stachowiak? I have no idea. I have no idea. John S. <laughs> he was checking on his traps in these woods. Even though hunting rabbits and muskrats were illegal in this area, that didn't stop the hunters from setting their traps. Stachowiak? You know, I'll just call him Stock. Yeah, let's go with that. He was checking to see if any muskrats met his trap. And with that, he found them. Well, he found his traps, but he also found an opened cardboard box. This box was labeled furniture, fragile. Do not open with knife. Sorry, I don't know why I just said fragile like that. I never say fragile like that. So I take that back. Don't, I don't say fragile. It's fragile. Moving on. So, as Mr. Stock investigated closer, it appeared to be a baby doll inside of this box. But he decided to take a closer look, and with that look, that provided the evidence of it being a boy, not a doll. This boy was naked, bruised, and wrapped up in a blanket, and he was obviously dead. Uh, Mr. Stock knew that this needed to be reported, but he wasn't going to be the one to make that call. And so Mr. Stock went home and didn't tell anyone. Honestly, if I ran into an empty box with a child in it, I have no idea how I would react, but I know I would not do that. I would be screaming. I would be freaking out. If I was with anybody, I would tell them and be like, oh my gosh, this is awful. I don't know if I would tell them you need to see this because I don't want anybody to see that. But it's also like how like this isn't believable. Like it wouldn't be believable to go out hunting one day to be looking at your traps and find this box and inside have it have there be a boy in there. I can't even imagine that. And that's, that's scary. That's so scary. And he just left. He went home. He didn't want the police to be angry at him because of his illegal traps. Okay, first things first, get your priorities straight. You know, I am sure the police would be like, Okay, bro, we're not going to talk about your traps right now. We're going to talk about this dead child that you found. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's suspicious at all or if it's just like, 
him trying to cover his back or what. It's still just very, very weird and I don't understand why he didn't share this news, I guess. I don't want to call it news, but like news. But continuing on. With after this first encounter with the boy in the box, a couple days go by before someone else finds him. Frederick Benonis. I like Benonis because I can say his last name. That is the only reason why I like Benonis. And later you will not like him either. <laughs> now let's continue. So Benonis was a college student and he was on his way home. Benonis ended up pulling over to chase after a rabbit. And eventually the rabbit then leads him into the woods and boom, there's the box. Something that I find to be really interesting was that Mr. Stock hunted rabbits in this area. So obviously there were going to be rabbits there. I know that. But it's like a miracle that Benonis pulled over and saw this rabbit and was like, you know what, I'm going to go follow this rabbit, going to go play around with it, whatever. Literally, it's just like... What if that rabbit was caught in one of those traps and then the body wouldn't have been rediscovered? I'm sure it would have eventually, but maybe it would have been rediscovered when the body was decomposed way past, like, any way of being able of... I don't know. What am I trying to say? Um, the, the body would have been decomposed past any form of identification. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Thank you for understanding that sometimes getting my words out can be hard, but I'm trying. Anywho, what if this little boy, what if his favorite animal was a rabbit? I personally don't believe in reincarnation or anything, but I do believe in miracles and I do believe in ghosts. Ghosts are real. If you don't believe in ghosts, I just, I don't understand how you don't, but whatever. To each their own, it is a-okay to believe what you believe, as long as you don't harm anybody else, okay? We are a respectful and a loving community. Let us love one another. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> so it's like, I'm just thinking, with this rabbit, what if this rabbit was caught by traps? What if this rabbit was this little boy, you know? Or what if it was just like a nice spirit being like, hey, let me tell you, this little boy needs to be found. I just, thinking of all those different possibilities, it's like, wow. Like, how do you just stumble upon this cardboard box in the woods off of the side of the road? I think that's just, that's weird. The more that I think about it, it does sound suspicious of Bononis, but it's also like, I don't know, I'd like to believe that a rabbit led him there, but I'm not sure, but moving on, we are continuing with this case. So, when Bononis finds the box, he eventually saw the child, and when he saw the child, he did not get close to it, he did not get close to the box. He was like, uh, no, this is not any of my business. I'm gonna leave. He left. For the second time in a row, the child was found, but still 
He was not reported. Bonaris was afraid of talking to the police about what he found, especially since the police would ask him why he was there. This... Just... Just listen. Okay. So, along this road, um, on, I think it was the north side of this road that Benonis drove down was a school. Or it was a religious compound named Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. It was a weird spot for a school, I believe, but, well, it was weird because there was nothing else around. So, like, you keep going down this road, and then the school is there, like, on the north side, then on the south, there's just woods. There's woods. And in that woods, people would dump all their trash there. It would basically become, like, a dumpster site, but then it also wasn't, like, when we think of garbage piles and everything, it wasn't that. It was just like people would just throw random crap in there, but it was still foresty because animals still lived there. Animals still loved it there. And I just, I think it's weird, but I don't know. Maybe the sisters who ran the school thought that it would keep the girls focused since there weren't any distractions nearby. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the school was like a boarding school or if the girls had to live there 24-7 or if they were like come and go like public school probably not public school but yeah probably not a public school but Bononis he frequented that road a lot because he enjoyed stalking girls at that school and the reason why he didn't want to come to the police was because he would have to share why he was down that road because he probably that was probably out of the way for him on his commute back to college and back to his home. That That's what I think. I think it was, like, out of his way. I don't know. And if it was, then the police would definitely be suspicious. Like, mm, what do you mean? And then he'd have to share. But after Bononis returned back to his home, he turned on the radio and on the radio, he heard about a missing four-year-old girl named Mary Jane Barker. She was from New Jersey. And after he heard this on the radio, he flipped out. Since he was not close to the cardboard box that he saw the, the body in, he did not know if it was a girl or if it was a boy. He just knew that there was a child in there. There was a dead child in this cardboard box and he just left it there. But on the next morning, Pannonis met with the local priest and told him about what he found. And literally, shout out to priests, <laughs> because they have to hear a lot of crap, and I don't know what they hear, everything I assume, and I just, I don't know how they do that. I don't know. I'm grateful that I'm not a priest. <laughs> that, that job that sounds really stressful. Especially, like, still trying to believe, like, oh my goodness, like, in general. Let's say somebody did something, like, awful, you know, and they come to you and they're there to repent and they're there to be better and to better themselves and to come closer to their God, but 
if I was the priest, I would have a hard time, like, still remembering that, oh, they are a child of God, <laughs> and they, they can repent, they can grow. I have a hard time letting things of the past go, and I don't know, that's something that I am personally working on, and it's kind of difficult, though, not going to lie, but all of us have our own things that are difficult, but shout out to priests. <laughs> they deal with a lot, and they are more forgiving than I am, and I need to be more forgiving. Thank you, again, for this second TED Talk. <laughs> so, after Bononis consulted with the priest, he ended up telling the police, and on February 25th of 1957, an official police investigation began for America's unknown child. And with that, they found out that the child was not Mary Jane Barker, the missing girl from New Jersey. She was eventually later found, but she was deceased. She was found in a hallway closet of her home. She was trapped on the 28th. And her death was accidental, but the boy in the box's death ended up turning really, really dark. Okay, I just have a couple questions. So, Mary Jane Barker was in her own home. I, okay. So, I know one time when I was a kid, I was doing like, I was playing hide and go seek with my siblings and my mom. And I hid under my sister's bed. And I was there for a long, long, long time. And I was there long enough where I fell asleep. <laughs> and my poor mother was freaking out. And she had no idea where I was. She, she just could not find me. And I don't know. Before, because like, she knew that I was not outside. My siblings checked our backyard. We always had the front door locked. And to be honest, I've always like been nervous of going out my front door because... So, <laughs> my mom and I, we both have, I don't want to say like a passion, but it's like we both, uh, I don't want this to sound weird, but you guys will know what I mean. We both like learning about different crimes. We like crime shows. We like true crime. We like horror films. And um, when I, I was just always told like, oh, you always need somebody. Like you need a buddy. You need a buddy because of the buddy system to go out front and so I never went out front. I sometimes I still like have a hard time with that. Whenever I go and walk my dog to go get the mail, I'm like, oh, I need a buddy. But then I need to realize like, it's okay. It's okay. Don't live my life in fear. So that's something I'm also working on as well as forgiving. <laughs> but yeah, it's like if your child was in your house and your child died, um, so, my criminalistics professor, she is a queen. I love her. She's iconic. She's so much fun. So, she she absolutely hates the smell of decomp, and I would too if I ever smelled it. I hope I never smell it, but you can smell it. And I don't know if Mary Jane Barker was hidden underneath things. I know she was trapped, but I'm not sure, like, if her family could not smell the decomposition, if they couldn't hear her. I assume she would be screaming, 
But I just don't understand how they couldn't find her. Yes, it's not my story. Yes, it's not my home that I lived in. I don't know the family situation. But that's just, it's weird to me. It's weird. With the investigation being official for America's Unknown Child, they found out that the boy in the box was around three to six years old. He had light brown hair that was trimmed recently, like prior to his death or he recently passed away, and he was relatively clean. His fingers and toes were wrinkled, and that meant that meant that he was wet before he died. So either he was taking a bath or he was in a lake. I don't know, just anything with water. Oh, the wrinkle fingers and toes. It's almost that season. It's almost swimming season. So I'm excited to get those back. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I need to keep it to the case. Okay. And then they ended up having an autopsy performed on this boy to be able to finalize what the cause of death was to see if they could find anything that would make him I don't want to okay this might sound weird but like or sound sad like anything to make him unique that he would stand out and people would be able to identify him if they knew like this one fact about him but the autopsy did provide news that he was covered in bruises and he had signs of blunt force trauma to his head and neck. The blunt force trauma to his head and neck were inevitably what ended up killing him. Um, the bruises showed signs that he was abused, he was neglected, and he was extremely malnourished. The boy weighed about 30 pounds when he was that when when he died that's not okay that's just how can you do that to another human being let alone a child it just breaks my heart um and with the autopsy it also shared that the boy could have faced more than one medical conditions or issues and they also found seven scars on his body. So one scar was on his left ankle, another on his chest. The third was in his groin area. Fourth was his left elbow. Five was his chin. And six was the left side of his chest. And the seventh, the location of the seventh was never shared, but they did always say that he had seven scars. So I'm like, where was the seventh one? Let me know. I have no idea where it is. And so, it's just, I find it weird that he had so many scars on the left side of his body. Granted, I've had three, yeah, yeah, I've had three surgeries on my left ankle, so I understand that, but I'm like, this is a little boy. Maybe he was left, maybe he was left-handed and he was dominant with his left hand, and so he did everything on his left. Maybe, maybe that's plausible. I don't know. But... The medical examiner also discovered that on the boy's left eye, again with the left, I don't know what's up with the left, but something's up. So on his left eye, under the UV light, it glowed blue. That sounds really weird to me. Why would an eye glow blue? I have blue eyes, and I don't want my eye to glow blue. Dude, try saying that five times fast. 
Ida Glow Blue. <laughs> um, so this actually means that the boy had a prescription to treat whatever condition that he had. I don't know what condition he had. The police don't know what condition he had, but he was obviously being treated for that. So I don't know how they were getting that prescription. Maybe I just wish that like there were records of these things. Oh, 1957. So much fun. So, near the box uh, that the boy was found in, there was a navy blue corduroy cap. And there were also other clothing items, such as a tan scarf and a yellow shirt, which could have fit the boy, and I'm... I assumed that they fit the boy, but there was no evidence saying that those clothes belonged to the boy. After the autopsy, um, photographs and fingerprints were taken from the boy, and still the police had nothing to progress the in the investigation with. But they did print out posters. There were about 400,000 posters printed of the boy, and it was distributed as far as it could go. I watched the BuzzFeed Unsolved. Yes, this case is unsolved. Dang it, I, I spoiled it. Um, <laughs> the BuzzFeed Unsolved, um, about America's Unknown Child, and they said that they delivered it to supermarkets, to mail carriers like to the post office that's the words I was looking for and to just anywhere that they could they delivered these signs these posters and with all of those signs nothing beneficial to the case came from it but the investigation of this boy it brought a lot of media attention and with this media attention, like, springing itself onto the case, um, many people were like, wait, tell us where the cap was found, where the box is from, where the blanket's from, everything like that. And so, police continued to dig further. So the cap that was found near the body, it was custom made. Nothing on the market was like this hat. And no... It wasn't tested for DNA because that technology wasn't created in 1957. Literally, ugh. The way that technology has progressed over the years, it is astounding. It is amazing. And it's just, it's crazy. Technology is beautiful. And I am so grateful to have technology in my life. And I just wish, like, we could go back in time to be able to solve these cases and to give that clarity to the family and honestly like I want to know how this ends and so moving back to the cap so the cap did have a tag of the manufacturers and eventually that led police to find their way to Hannah Robbins Hannah Robbins was the one who helped custom make this hat she remembered the specific navy blue corduroy hat with the leather strap. She said that the man who was, or that the man who ordered this hat was in his late 20s. And police showed her a picture of the boy. And she was like, hmm, 
The man that wanted this hat looked very similar to the child. But, of course, there were no records because everybody paid in cash back then. And so no records were kept because why? Why? And so that lead led to nowhere. Next, we move on to the box that the boy was in. So the box was found, well, obviously, and it was very unique. There was a serial number still legible and still visible on the box. And it was tracked back to a, J- a J.C. Penny. So this box was meant and used for a bassinet. But there was no way to track the buyer since J.C. Penny sold everything in cash. We love that. We love that so much. No, we don't. And... The FBI wanted to see if they could find any fingerprints. There were no fingerprints on the box. And there are many people who believe that, oh, maybe the box and the bassinet belong to the person who killed this child. Or maybe the person who who bought the bassinet threw the box away. Whenever I order things, I tend to throw the box away. Or sometimes I do save it so I can reuse it when I ship other things out. But, you know, for the most part, I tend to throw them away. So maybe the person who killed the boy found the box in a dumpster and took it. Maybe the box is not related to the bassinet owner. Maybe it's just related to the perpetrator. And... Still, that led nowhere. Next, we are going to talk about the blanket that the boy was wrapped in. The blanket was sent to the Philadelphia Textile Institute to be analyzed. However, at this institute, they found out that the blanket was not at all unique. It was not unique. There were thousands of others just like that. They were distributed across the country, even in Canada. So it's not a unique blanket. It's not going to get the police anywhere, which sucks, which sucks. How else, what else are they going to use to be able to find out who this little boy is? And so with dead end after dead end, the police are doing all that they can, but there was nothing nothing coming up on this case. And having that in mind, the theories and theories and theories rolled into the police investigation. And the police investigated those theories too. But before we get into those theories, we're going to have a short break. Welcome back from the break. Now, theories are really interesting. They can range from totally believable or just... What's the word? What's the word? You know... hmm, Controversy? No. What's the word? I can't think of it. But there's this word that I'm trying to think of. Watch, I'll remember. I might just put it in the show notes or on the Instagram post. But, um... 
oh my goodness, that's gonna bother me. Anywho, some of the theories are gonna sound more likely than others. Other ones are gonna sound completely bonkers. And you know what? That's okay. I think that's kind of the point of theories because and it, honestly, anything can happen because we we honestly don't know what went on with this case. But anywho, so this theory, um, the theory is called The Man on the Bus. And I'm reading these theories from medium.com. I'll show, I'll link this in the show notes as well. Um, so it says, quote, in March of 1957, a woman visited the morgue and saw the body of the boy in the box, who she recognized. She claimed that she had seen the boy sleeping in the arms of a man on a bus from Philadelphia to New Jersey. The man and the boy had boarded in Camden, and the woman assumed they were father and son. Being an ar amateur artist, she submitted a sketch of the man to the police. The sighting could never be confirmed, but it grabbed the attention of many detectives. Many thought that they had found what the face of the man's father looked like. Decades later, forensi famous forensic sculptor Frank Bender used this sketch and the facial features of the boy to create a bust depicting what the boy in the box's father may have looked like. Bender was known for his impeccable technique, so this bust is widely regarded as being accurate. Whether or not the original witness sighting was real, a useful composite was created as a result of it. Unquote. Or, yeah. I honestly just think it's so amazing that people can... Okay. So, in my forensics class that I took in high school, we went over, um, like, sculpting and how that helped with the case with a majority of cases actually and it's just so beautiful and it's so I feel like it'd be so stressful trying to sculpt a face and to be able to understand like people's facial structures and the muscles and the bones for different races for different genders and different ages because you know as you grow up your face changes and so trying to accurately sculpt somebody's face and then and then the cases where the face is so accurate that that person is found imagine that imagine like taking a picture with the bust of you and it's like oh my goodness yeah that's me <laughs> and I just think it's so crazy but it's also so beautiful I'm like wow these people are so talented them and their gifts I'm so happy that people use their gifts um when they use it for good I mean um yeah I don't know. So that, that theory is interesting. It's just like, I don't know, maybe it was, on, maybe honestly it was a father and son from Philadelphia to New Jersey. Cause it's like, if the boy was in his arms, honestly, the boy was like three to six years old. So I don't know if the boy's face was like in the man's chest or facing out because kids don't really like to be held. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to hold a toddler? No, they don't want to be held. They're like, no, let me be free. So, either this kid, either this was, like, a well-behaved kid, the kid was sleeping, whatever. I personally don't think that it was the boy in the box, but, hey, you know, it's a theory. And then there is another theory. This, I am still reading off from medium.com. Loved the article that this website and author um, has about the boy in the box. Really worth the read. Again, if you are interested in more details about this case, I'll link it in the show notes. So, this is this theory is the testimony of M. Quote, 
There is one famous witness who stands above the others in this case. Although her testimony has never been confirmed and she is no longer working with the investigation, she is the only witness to ever detail information to the police that had not been released publicly. Despite this lead never really going anywhere, there is a large group of people who believe that this theory is the real story of the boy in the box. In 2002, a psychiatrist from Ohio contacted the Philadelphia police about a client who went by the pseudonym M, also referred to as Mary or Martha. I'm going to call her Martha. Um, so, uh, the client who claimed to have known the boy. Martha had told the psychiatrist that she knew the boy in 1989, but was not comfortable coming forward at the time as, her, as his story was strongly tied to her childhood trauma. Philadelphia detectives and Vidoc, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, yeah, you're welcome, I'm trying, <laughs> and Vidoc society members traveled to Cincinnati to meet with Martha and her psychiatrist. In a three-hour interview, Martha explained that her mother had bought the boy in the box, whose name was Jonathan, from an unknown man in 1954. Martha was 10 at the time, and Jonathan was a very young child. Jonathan was mentally handicapped and could not speak or care for himself. Martha's mother subjected both her and Jonathan to physical and sexual abuse, which worsened the boy's already frail state considerably. Jonathan lived in the basement for the two years he was with the family and was not allowed to be seen by visitors. He was malnourished and his hair grew out from the lack of care. Martha said that her mother killed Jonathan in a fit of rage after he vomited up a meal of baked beans. She hit his head against a wall as punishment, which knocked him unconscious and then tried to bathe him in the bathtub, where he eventually died from his injuries. She then cut... Sorry, Hyun. She then cut his hair and nails to conceal his identity and put him in the trunk of the car. Martha and her mother took the boy out to Fox Chase to dispose of him, but were seen by a passing motorist who asked them if they were having car trouble as they rummaged through the trunk through Jonathan's body. Martha and her mother concealed their car's license plate from the motorist who eventually drove off. After he left, they took Jonathan out of the trunk and put him in a cardboard box they found at the scene. There were many parts of Martha's story that matched up with the boy in the box, and the detectives and Vidoc Society members who attended the interview were convinced that she was telling the truth. At the time of the interview, the fact that the boy had been submerged in water before his death was not released to the public. The medical examiner's findings of a brown substance in the boy's throat as thought he had vomited up something was also not public knowledge. Finally, the story of the passing motorist matched up almost perfectly with a man who came forward to tell his story in 1957 a story which had also not been released to the public at that time. Like many of the other theories, the testimony of Martha could not be conclu conclusively proven. The basement of the home Jonathan supposedly lived in was investigated, but no evidence was found. It was discovered that Martha also had a history of severe mental illness, which led some of the investigators to question her reliability as a witness. Others, however, argued that there was no way to experience what she experienced and not develop a, se a severe mental illness. Within a few months of her testimony appearing in newspapers, the real name of Martha was leaked to the press and she stopped cooperating with the investigation, eventually fleeing the country to maintain her privacy. There has been no further information from her since 2002, but many people the author included, feel that her statement is very likely to be true. The fact that she knew information about the case that hadn't been released to the public makes her the most reliable witness we've covered so far, despite her mental illness.
Her reluctance to come forward and cooperate also makes her claim more valid in my eyes. My eyes being the author's eyes. The main reason people fabricate confessions or statements is for attention and infamy, and that's clearly the opposite of what Martha wanted. And, end quote. Literally, okay. If facts are not leaked to the public and you have a witness who's, like, spitting straight fire, saying things that nobody knows besides those who are working in the investigation, literally, yes, she is being treated for her mental health. It sounds like her mother was awful. And she was because she was abusing her child. That's awful. No, 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 no. And so it's just like, obviously she's going to have trauma from that and mental illness um, is a result from trauma sometimes. Sometimes, not all the time. And so I, I really, I think that theory is pretty much true. And it just sucks that the media were like, okay, we just need to know who this person is and exploited her identity. And I don't think that's okay. But granted, that's what the media does. That is their job. And it's just very frustrating because what if, what if that was the answer, you know? And like, what if that was, what if the boy's name is Jonathan? What if, um, Martha's story is the truth. And I just wish that there was more evidence. I wonder, like, if that case happened nowadays, I wonder how police would handle it. Like, would they handle it the same? Would they change their ways of gathering evidence? Have they? You know, it's just like, I have so many questions and I just wish that we knew the answer to this little boy's mystery because he deserves to have his name on his grave and yeah it's just really heartbreaking um so yeah that is the case of america's unknown child it is still unsolved as of april of 2022 and it's just kind of kind of wild i'm like wow this case is really really old it's older <laughs> then, I don't know. It, well, like, it's not really, really old. You know what I mean. It's just old for a case, especially, like, a cold case, and it's difficult to gather evidence now because the majority of the people who were alive during that time, they have either passed on, they either don't remember, you know, and so I'm worried that this case might never be solved, and that's scary, but... Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. If you have any questions, feel free to uh, message me on Instagram, whatever. It's at, I'm at secondary underscore accounts. And yeah, I hope to see you guys next week. Okay, bye.